this concealed carry law in Florida. Now we got more people fantasizing being, they all fantasize being the guy who's there that day at 7-Eleven when that kid comes in to rob the place. He takes out the bad guy. You know, it shouldn't be a human fantasy. Murder should not be a human fantasy. And our society is in danger when so many amongst us have a desire to kill and the tools are readily available. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Fred Wellman, a democracy advocate and army combat vet who now serves as senior advisor for voters tomorrow. He also hosts the On Democracy podcast. Fred, great to have you back. Hey, Ken, good to see you, bro. It's been too long. You too. I, I gotta say, I really miss your old Twitter bio, the one that had the, the line, West Point and Harvard, but truly educated in Iraq. Do you know the one I'm talking That's about? That's right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, no kidding. That's a while ago. Yeah. How is the new Twitter treating you? Because it's not the same place. Well, you know, for a while there, I went way back. Like, I lost a bunch of followers, and I, I wasn't one of the cool kids, nothing. And then for some reason, about a month ago, it started picking back up again for me. I don't know why. I can't explain it. But uh, suddenly, I was back in business again and, and doing well. And, uh, I, you know, I'm doing, you know, I stuck with it. it it's, we'll see what happens. But, uh, you know, I've got a great, I've built a following there for 13 years, and I'm not ready to quit yet. It is a bit of a hellscape, and I am always on the fence about, you know, do I participate in this or not, but you know, if it advances the work of uh, preserving and defending democracy, I'll I'll stay while I while I can. That's the thing, and and I I'm very generous with the block button, and you know, I mean, I, you know, because I you know I, I get the usual shit from people for my you know for uh, you know my my past work, if you will, but I, I just you know. Again, I I I I I got an audience there. I'm able to engage with people. I'm able to jab with people and joust with people I want to joust with and 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 have a, have ideas. It is what it is. I've I've not that I have to say I haven't built up my other platforms, but that's still that's still where I have my most fun. On the subject of democracy, you've got this great podcast on democracy, and it's your calling. I'm talking about the larger sum of all your advocacy work. I am looking at our political landscape today and I have this nagging worry about, I mean, we all have this worry about the strength of American democracy in particular, but on the heels of this epic win in Wisconsin, where we had a Supreme Court justice who believes in the rule of law, who believes in uh, civil rights and women's rights in particular, she won the day and now you have the Republican-dominated state legislature talking about impeachment. It makes me wonder if we're putting too much faith in the power of voters when a minoritarian system like in Wisconsin can overrule what they want. You have minoritarian rule cemented yep. by gerrymandering and voter suppression, and no wonder voters get frustrated, right? There you go. And I live in Missouri. It's another majority Republican supermajority state. They do whatever they want. They pass whatever laws they want for the most part. The Democrats tend to fight a pretty good rear battle. We have found, you know, we, you know by splitting their caucus because their caucus is completely united. You know, it, it is what it is. Now, will they do these things? Um, there's a lot of talk. They tend to talk a lot. They tend to say they're going to do things. Um, you know, you have to have a justification for any of these things. But you look down in Tennessee and you see the same thing, right? Be, you know, three reps are talking about being uh, expelled from the the House of Representatives of Tennessee. They have not expelled anyone from the House of the Representatives in Tennessee since the Civil War. 
you know, and because these three representatives, you know, spoke out in support of these uh, gun protesters, now they're being they're being threatened with it. So we do have a movement, I believe, of at the state level of Republicans who are in these majorities who are using the power of government to be ruthless. Some would call it, I don't know, fascism. <laughs> you know, if you, if you know the elements of authoritarianism, then they're they're using those elements. Now. I, you know, there is there's ways to be pressure, but you're right. It, it is hard not to be discouraged, saying, "Well, vote." You know, you got to vote. Vote. Voting will save us. Uh, and then you turn around and see stuff like that. There is also my belief, and I've I've talked about it quite a bit in the last few months about we had to fight everywhere, right? And so, you know, I, I I did tease my show today. As a matter of fact, I live in Missouri. We just had local elections for school boards. We did really well, actually. It was the folks on the right side of this, the, the common sense folks learned their lessons from the last time we did just it's every year, it's every year here for these school boards. And they ran like tickets of candidates. You know, they they did a lot of support for these candidates. They did a lot of grassroots work. They did that social media effort that takes in a local election. You know, the local elections are fought on Facebook, believe it or not. <laughs> and, and, and they prevailed. So I think it's easy to get discouraged. I tell people all the time, it's easy to get discouraged, easy to believe that we're, we're losing this battle. But I, I also kind of want to take a minute, take a victory and go on to the next fight. I, I think they'll have their hands full of the first thing they try to do is impeach someone without any basis or merit for it. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, the thing is for a slim majority, they do have to get everybody. And what stopped us here in Missouri is the ability of the minority caucus to be able to kind of split them up a little bit and, and, and pressure them. Uh, and I hope they'll do the same thing in Wisconsin so they won't have this, uh, you know, lockstep business. Yeah, me too. I don't get discouraged. I mean, I'm, I'm doing this every chance I get, but I do want to yeah. be realistic. And when you talk about those Republican supermajorities, you're talking about legislative supermajorities. Often they exist in states that are more or less split. I mean, in, in Ohio, right. Ohio is only slightly red if you look at voter behavior, but our yep. state house is is blood red. It's it's right. disgusting the way gerrymandering and voter suppression has entrenched this these supermajorities, or in some states like Wisconsin, entrenched minorities who actually don't reflect the will of the majority of voters of those states. And I want to be sympathetic for those who get discouraged about the power of democracy, uh, but I, I want to convince people, and, and I know you're, you're in the same trench with me, that the only way to change this is to vote in such overwhelming numbers and like those kids in Nashville to show up, demand accountability uh, so that their, their tactics at, at least suffer from the the glare of the public spotlight well that's it we have to show up and and you have to turn out and and that, and that really is the key right uh, you know here in missouri 40 percent of the state legislature 40 percent of the republicans ran unopposed if we seed this ground if we continuously seed ground don't get in the fight even if it means we might lose we just keep on losing and we have to create more democrats in this case uh you know in here in missouri we need about seventy thousand more democrats where are those going to come from they're going to come from the youth they're going to come from people who are discouraged like us with our, the, the the republican party and what it's become but you have to actually seek them you have to actually find ways to talk to them and drag them out and find the issues they care about i mean we're, we're finding abortion works believe it or not you know, women believe is 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 one of those issues that crosses party lines, and 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 that's that's one you can't it, the common sense measures we need for safety. 
even guns. I mean, they, there, there are things we agree on. 93% or 94% of Americans, you know, believe that expanded backgrounds checks is just a common sense change. And you look down in Florida where DeSantis got rid of their concealed, <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, their permitting process worked just fine. No one asked to get rid of their permitting process. And DeSantis and his, his rubber stamp legislature just passed a law to expand concealed carry. So now everybody's packing in Florida. Now, again, if we come to the table, show our cards, you know, and 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 open the tent up and make sure we're fighting with these things. But it's something I say quite a bit that the, the culture wars, as they're accused of being, are real wars out here in red states where we live, right? The states where they're controlling, even a, a purple state of the red legislature. They've gerrymandered it, so they've got control. But people's lives are at risk. Women's health care is at risk. Uh, you know, our, our, our LGBTQ community is at risk of, of suicide, increased suicide. Our community, our kids' educations are at risk because they're defunding schools. So there really isn't much choice but to, to do the work to create more people on our side and then turn them out. Because in the end, you said something key. If we don't show up, we don't win. You know, and, and when we're seeing the record number turnout, in spite of the suppression laws, we win. So get them the fuck out, man, <laughs> get them, get them to vote, you know, and, and when they do, here we are. I don't know if you saw the lines to vote on college campuses in Wisconsin, Yep, but it gave me yep. such incredible hope. Before this particular election, I kept revisiting Ezra Klein's ideas about the democracy doom loop, which predicts that the less responsive government becomes because it is so gerrymandered and and entrenched by voter suppression and things like that, the more discouraged voters become, which means the less faith they have in the system, the less often they vote, and it just becomes a vicious cycle. I don't think that's yep. going to take hold. It didn't take hold in Wisconsin, primarily because of so many young people who are saying the only way to change this is to show up. Young people and others who who advocated and and rallied and organized so much organizing done by yeah. by particular communities there in Wisconsin to and the grassroots. This is all grassroots. That's why I like I like work with voters of tomorrow. I love what they're doing with the Gen Z. Understanding how this Gen Z uh, how it works. I've had a couple of great conversations. I had Santiago on my air on my show. Show I've become good friends with John Delavolpe from the Institute of Politics at Harvard. John's done nothing but study this generation and, and millennial generation for over twenty five years. And he knows he knows intimately what drives these guys, and they are driven differently. Uh, the Gen Z voters are driven by; they're much more aware of the culture issues that affect all of them. They they go to the voting booth saying, "I'm I'm voting because my mom is losing her rights, my sister is losing rights, and and that sister may not be related. That sister may be a sister who just lives in another state, and and they 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 feel." This connectedness much more than our our generations have in the past. I mean, you remember when we were when we were kids, you know, the, the, your community was your community. I live in Kirkwood, Missouri growing up. It, it was where I could ride my bike. It was the high school I went to. That was my community. This generation grew up wired differently, literally wired differently. Their community is the larger community of, of people who look like them across the country, people who have shared experiences like they do across the country. And... Uh, I, I take great hope in that. Uh, it's a demographic time bomb, as somebody described it today, I saw, that the Republicans are facing as this generation grows and is sick of the bullshit. And and I think it, the job of people like us is to help them do that, help them organize and, and provide them um, whatever kind of mentorship we can do as they take on this fight and grow into a generation with real power. I mean, you see what Maxwell Frost is doing. I mean, I just love watching the guy in action. He's brilliant. He knows what he's doing. He's doing a great job. And, and that's really exciting for me. So, yeah, I think there's real hope there. I think we could really find hope in this next generation. And, and all guys like you and I could do is get the fuck out of their way. 
I, I'm so glad you are you are calling us out, you and me, because I, you know, I am fully aware that this is a show with two old white guys talking about Gen <laughs> exactly. Z. Hey, I got to tell you, Santiago Mayor and I were on the phone. He's the head of, Gen of uh, Voters of Tomorrow. And we were on the phone the other day, and I was telling him about how I'm going to uh, Odessa concerts. I'm going to two Odessa concerts, which is an electronic band that I'm a big follower. I am not the oldest person that goes to their concerts. But Santiago always jokes that he wants to send me a, a an honorary Gen Z member certificate <laughs> because because I, I'm more read in on modern electronic music than he is. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I guess that comes with growing up with uh, people of this generation and raising a few of them myself and and now living with them. But but you know you, you it, it's 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 I have such great respect for him and I saw the change. Again, you know, seeing my own kids grow up and seeing my daughter sitting in a sandbox. Look, it struck me that, you know, we lived on a military base. It's a very diverse community, as you know, and the military is very diverse. They didn't care. They didn't know who anybody was. They didn't know there was black or brown or in the military world, they didn't know enlisted versus officers. It's just this really nice kid. They're playing in the sandbox. They're good friends. And I, I just saw my role was to not let them change their mind about that, that my role as a white guy who grew up in Missouri, parents who survived the depression and have a very different worldview than I did, uh, in many ways, because of that, my job was to make sure my daughter and my sons, daughters and sons, never deviated from the belief they had as a small child that we're all created equal. And that if we're a different color or a different sexual orientation or whatever, that didn't matter. We're still just people. And and if you know, you, you and I, you know, raising children, it, the worst thing we do is raise our children to share our beliefs sometimes. And I, I'm proud. I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, my kids tease me because uh, they made me a liberal. And uh, it's it's a hard not to argue that that's true, right? <laughs> you know, I saw them. You know, I saw I saw the struggles they have. I see the struggles my daughter has with healthcare. I see my son's struggles with getting the, the education he deserves. And so uh, I, I've kind of made it a lifetime mission to not let their beautiful belief in our society uh, be damaged by me telling them it's not the way they think it is. I think the first time you and I met, you were a Republican, if not a conservative. I mean, this was probably yep. the mid-2000s. Yep. Hopefully nobody does the research on what I'm about to say, but this was the Mission Continues era. You were just getting off the ground. I think that's when we met. What flipped the switch for you? Was 2011. It, was 2011. What happened? Yeah. Well, uh, well, for me, the switch, I, it's funny you ask that question because I had, I actually had the conversation with my ex-wife and, and I said, you know, when did I become such a liberal? And she's like, you always were, you know, it's just that you fit within the Republican party. You know, you look, I, I ran for mayor at Peachtree City, Georgia in 2000, this is a little known, little, little Fred fact. Um, I got the army after 13 years, joined the reserves in Atlanta, was living in Peachtree City, Georgia, got a wild hair to run for mayor. And I was running for mayor, and, and that then was the Republican stronghold of all of Georgia, by the way. And uh, you know, and they, they were checking me out, and you know, inviting me in because it's a nonpartisan race in Georgia. But but I remember distinctly, if the issue of, of LGBT rights came up, I, I don't care who you sleep, with. I don't care who you love. That's none of my damn business. I didn't care about you know that getting into people's marriages, abortion. I've always been a supporter of, of the right to abortion, the right to women's health care. Again, none of my business. I was a defense hawk, if you will, right? I believe it needed a strong national defense. My version of fiscal conservative was the idea, and this is an old school version, the idea that I should pay taxes. But if I do pay taxes, the government should spend them for the greater good and not on ridiculous things, right? But the greater good means strong defense. It means 
good roads. It means a health and welfare social net that, that rises all Americans up equally. Those are, at the time, we're conservative, but now you know, I sound like a freaking flaming liberal, right? <laughs> and so, so what you saw was a movement. And then I did truly change. I did, I did truly see the arc of it, where I saw my LGBT um, family members and what they were going through. I saw the healthcare and the challenge to get, to get decent healthcare. And, uh, and somewhere along the line, I just started kind of fading away. And then of course, the Republican party did everything humanly possible to get rid of me, right? You know, starting even before, people think it was Trump, but even before Trump, the Republican party was doing everything they could to get rid of me as a member of that, uh, as a person who wasn't staunchly Christian, staunchly conservative, certain way of thinking. And then of course, Trump came down the golden escalator. And as I saw, and I, I tell a story often, Ken, I don't know if I've told to you, but for me, the final straw for all of it was um, when he when he talked about how he likes people that weren't captured. And as you said, we were both in the veterans community. You were a veterans advocate, and like I was. And what struck me, to be very honest, brother, was how our own community wasn't upset, right? That large swaths of the veteran community accepted this man, this vulgar man, because he had the right letter next to his name, an R. And when he said he, you know, and, and he was in many ways, he had to, I don't know if you remember, you, you may not remember, but he was welcomed at the Rolling Thunder in 2015. Right afterwards. Right afterwards. He right was the speaker of honor. In D.C. Yep. At an organization in D.C. He was the speaker of honor at the Lincoln Memorial. They put up a podium for him after he said he didn't like people who were captured. The whole fucking existence of Rolling Thunder was to honor POWs and MIAs. And a guy who said, I don't like people to get captured was their honored guest. And that, nothing to me crystallizes the disconnect of our former com our community we worked in with the politics of the day and accepting a man who literally pissed on us, pissed on the on the memory of our, our fellow service members, pissed on those who were captured, serving their country, and then was honored. I mean, and I, I find... You know, the Rolling Thunder went away. If you remember, they went out of business. I think I think uh, Anvets took them over because a lot of their corporate sponsors were like, uh, you know, see ya. But yeah, so my arc, I was considered a conservative. But I, I, I laugh because you'll you'll appreciate it when one of my first employees came to work for me in 2011 or 2012. Paul Rykoff, our friend Paul Rykoff at IVA, uh, reached out to her and said, "How can you work for that right wing nutjob?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, and now he calls himself an independent, and I'm a flaming liberal. But I think the circumstances of our time have changed, and I say it often: uh, I didn't leave the Republican Party; the Republican Party left me. And where I was able to be a centrist, if you will, and and find a home there, I did. And I also think, for the final thing I'll say on that, and you'll appreciate this as a veteran as well, you're, there was a cultural pressure to not be a lib, right? Like there was a cultural pressure, just go along, be a good little Republican, and, and especially as an officer, I think. And I think I, let, I think I hang on to that too long, but I've certainly flipped in the last four years. I, I think even more so, it, it, my, my girlfriend's a former Republican as well. And and she jokes often that I'm, I'm more of a flaming liberal now than she was ever, so who do you know? People change, old dogs, new stripes. <laughs> yeah. What responsibility, we had Paul Rykoff on uh, a while back. I should get him back on the show. He's always a great guest. What responsibility do vets who have seen the light, and you know, increasingly that's a, that's a positive story, uh, I think, for the first time in yeah. modern history yeah. in the 2020 election, a majority of active duty personnel <laughs> voted against a wartime Republican 
sitting commander in chief. Uh, so the the arc is bending, yep. but not not quickly enough, especially yep. given the ha- the behavior yep. of today's Republican Party. What responsibility do we have, especially to call out our brothers and sisters in arms who either stray or people like you know Ron DeSantis? who wore the uniform and, and, you know, aren't just misled into following Trump, but going all in and, and worshiping at that altar, what role should we play? Well, you know, I was very aggressive in that. I mean, you t- I'm very proud of the fact that so many of our fellow service members and veterans left behind the Republican Party of that election. That was actually the focus of my work at the Lincoln Project. I was brought in by Steve Schmidt specifically to run our veteran and military family, uh, military family members and military uh, members pillar community organizing with the idea being if we could convince enough of that pillar of our community that supported Trump, the Trump base to turn away to the tune of four to 6% of them at least that that would, that would be part of it. And we were very aggressive at that. People, people don't realize that I actually was, it was, I'll, I won't take all the credit. Kurt Bardella, my friend, Kurt Bardella had the idea that, you know, he came to me one day and said, Hey, what do you think of running ads on military times and stars and stripes news uh, website uh, against Trump? I'm like, I love it. Bold move. I'm not even sure it's legal though. So God bless them. We we looked it up and found out, yeah, you can run political ads on those on those sites. So so we actually ran anti-Trump ads on military times and on strikes. People thought I was crazy. I, I got all kinds of hate mail. But I wanted them to realize and we were very selective in the ads we picked. We picked our like our Sully Sullenberger ad, where you have somebody like, you know, a, an icon, a, a veteran airline pilot who turned away from this, who, who said, this is unacceptable. He should not be commander in chief. Um, the Vimman ad, which I thought was a powerful ad where we brought Rachel and Alex Vimman in, and I actually co-wrote that ad. And the voice of my ad that I did wasn't Alex. We've seen Alex speak. I wanted Rachel. I wanted Rachel to talk about as a military spouse, what it was like to be attacked by the most powerful man in the world. You know, she, she's just a, she was just an army wife at the time when all that stuff started. And and here she was having, you know, the hate mail sent to her. Yeah, they're Republicans there. And so I, I ran those ads very directly with the idea of being, hey, you know, you have to understand that this is not who we should be following. That as a commander in chief, he should not be the commander in chief and you should not follow. And then the horror to find out that so many of our peers were veterans and and shockingly active duty military participate in the insurrection on January 6th. Um, they just arrested a Navy, another Navy sailor who went into the Capitol. Of course, an an active duty Marine major from Quantico made his way up there and, and, and pulled a cop off one of the doors. I mean, we have a problem. Yeah, we have a problem. We have a problem. And extreme, and you not, I know you're very involved in the, I think you did a whole damn documentary on the topic. <laughs> you know, I think you've done the work, you know, you've done the work on this. So I, I do believe that we who are are out here and have the ability to use our voices need to use those very powerfully to, to show our peers that, that this is not a movement you want to follow. The danger in any authoritarian movement, and look, you know, Hitler didn't build those camps. You know, Hitler didn't invade Poland. Uh, no, it was loyal troops. And so it's everything we can do to ensure the momentum doesn't gain that these authoritarian movements are allowed to, to overwhelm the decent people of this country. But yeah, I, I believe it's part of our duty. People ask me all the time, why do I keep doing this? I take a lot of flack. I, I've, I've had a couple of jobs come, come and go. It definitely hurt my work when I was a veterans advocate, when I was out so out, so outspoken. But I think the most important thing, if, if I never want to be sitting there, you know, 20, 30 years from now when I'm on my deathbed thinking I should have done more, I just, I'm not going to do that. Well, your work with the Lincoln Project targeting vets and military communities was impactful on on multiple levels. Obviously, it's it's not just a, 
a one for one because you're pulling votes away from Trump and delivering them right. to the to the D column. But vets are also, and I think this is is often overlooked, such a force multiplier in politics. They're one of the few yeah. demographic groups that still have significant influence over over their peers and in their communities. And if you flip one vet, you, you're probably flipping two or three other voters that you don't even know about. Yeah, no, you're right. And the community is so uniquely tight. It's a community that trusts each other. And we, we saw this in our, I think, you, I should, I'm sure you saw this in your veterans' work uh, as an advocate where you're trying to deliver services to our veteran and military communities. They, they want to hear from other veterans and our military community members. They, 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 it's a, tr it's a, a trust network like few others. Uh, and so you can convince those within the community to speak to each other and say, hey, this isn't a direction we want to go. That's a very powerful tool. And that was one of the reasons I did, like when I built my, uh, I built a, uh, it's kind of a funny story, uh, Steve Schmidt, whom obviously I go way all back to 2005 with Steve. And when I first joined Lincoln Project, Steve said, hey, I, I need you to build us our own like council of generals. Like, you know, I, I want like 10 or 15 generals who are going to really, you know, talk to the troops and, and, and move them. I said, that's, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I said, because believe it or not, first of all, everybody's got their own fucking list of generals. But two, that's not the voice that is going to actually turn them. It, it, it's not them. It, you have to understand the military community isn't a general talking down to them to, hey, you should do this that works. Believe it or not, it's actually almost a negative. No, it, it was military spouses. It was the old veteran, Uncle Uncle Bob, the veteran. It was, it was enlisted soldiers with experience. So when I built my military and veterans advisory council, I called it, it was very, very diverse. It was, it was Jess Piper from Missouri who ended up running for office later. Uh, it was, it was gold star moms. It was blue star moms like Jess. It was national guard members. It was enlisted. It was officer. Uh, I had one general and he kept quitting on me, <laughs> you know, and because the goal was I wanted to create a committee and use their voices on town halls and use their voices in commercials to say, hey, we're one of you. If me, a military spouse, sees just how bad this person is and how bad they are for our community, then then you should trust me. Uh, and, and I really believe in my heart that having a bunch of flag officers like transmitting that because let's be honest, that's what general officers do. <laughs> they transmit, they hit, hit the press, they hit the microphone and go, I am important. And they let go of it. They don't listen. With me. <laughs> um, to me, I felt very important that we reach all the way down to the very lowest levels of the community so that the community could talk to each other and have an impact. I, I'm not saying, I don't, I don't try to claim credit. We, we did this all, we did this all by ourselves. But I do believe that the approach of, of having the community have these conversations amongst themselves and hosting those conversations, I think is key. I, I think we just described grassroots movements period 101, right? <laughs> I think I think that's grassroots 101, right? It's it's you've got to have people from within your community talking to other people within their community to turn the tribe. And um, that was the approach I took with Lincoln. And uh, frankly, I guess all my political work this day, I kind of do the same thing. Hi, Bird the Boats fans. I want to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for today's show, Fume. I have always struggled with cracking my knuckles. Our sponsor, Fume, helps me fight that bad habit. Fume is on a mission to accelerate humanity's breakup from the bad habits that consume far too many of us. Fume is a natural, diffusive device that uses plants and behavioral science to help you trade out your negative habits for a positive one. Fume is not a vape. It's a non-electronic device designed to transform your negative habits. Instead of pods filled with potentially harmful chemicals like a vape, Fume uses cores infused with plants like peppermint and cinnamon for delicious natural flavors. 
Fume's new version 2 model is tactile with an adjustable airflow dial and a magnetic end cap so your fingers will always have something to do. I didn't expect much out of Fume when I got it, but I especially love the peppermint pods and there are other great flavors to choose from. The easiest way to stop a bad habit is to switch to a positive one and Fume is designed perfectly to do just that. It's Fume's goal to make switching easy and even enjoyable. They have thousands of five-star reviews from people who successfully switched when other solutions just didn't work. Head to tryfume.com and use code BOATS to save 10% off when you get the Journey Pack today. The Journey Pack comes with three unique flavors and the new version 2 Fume to help kickstart your positive habits. That's tryfum.com and use code BOATS to save an additional 10% off on your order today. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you. As Ohio versus the world makes history fun again. Well, that's the grassroots piece. There's another element of it, though, when you're talking about Someone like, for example, Ron DeSantis running on his military record, it's going to take fellow vets right. to call his BS, right? There's yeah. this recent one that yeah. infuriates me even more than Ron DeSantis parading around a flight line like he's a Top Gun graduate. It's uh, Rep. Andrew Clyde from Georgia, the the <laughs> guy Republican responsible for dealing the AR-15 lapel pins and... Pins, the pins, yeah. He bills himself as a combat vet. And there isn't a single thing in his military bio, not a single decoration that validates that. How do we as vets call out this kind of BS from high flyers, <laughs> no pun intended, like Ron DeSantis, to these, these manipulators like Andrew Clyde sharing their 15 pens uh, because they claim to have fought in combat, which they didn't. Yeah, I've been doing it for ages. And there used to be a real robust community of like these fact checkers and you know, what they call the stolen valor hunters. Unfortunately, a lot of them ended up being MAGA. Uh, <laughs> that kind of ruined it. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's what you do. You know, you do have to, I, and I did it. You know, look at Jared, look what we did to Jared Majewski. Jared Majewski is a perfect example. That You know, he came out. That's a great example because this network and I was part of it. We went to the mat to take that guy right. down. Do you want to refresh people's memory on who this guy said he was? So Jay Reduce, you ran for Congress uh, against uh, Marcy, you know, against Marcy, right? That's right. And and his big claim to fame was that he was an Air Force had combat veteran. He would he would it was going on these right wing podcasts about how he'd been he'd been downrange or you know he he'd been in Afghanistan. Couldn't talk about it though, right? Couldn't talk about it. Yeah, it's secret secret location. 
And of course, some able bodied, you know, so a couple, a couple of us started asking questions because, you know, when you've been, when you've been downrange, you, look, that's a clue right there. You know, it, anybody who says they can't talk about where they were is, is fucking lying. I mean, let's, it's just, it's just, it's just a fucking lie, right? I mean, there, there, nothing's that secret, you know, it just isn't. And, and then, so we knew he was full of shit. And then you look him up. So somebody got a hold of his D214. And I, he was a damn aircraft load. He wasn't even a, he wasn't a cargo load. He was literally a passenger specialist for, for car. He, he was, it was a fucking, he wasn't even a stewardess for God's sake. And, you know, he literally loaded people. He took the manifest, got on the airplane and got off. And he was based in Qatar. He, he never touched the, I, there's no proof whatsoever. He even touched foot in Afghanistan. And so we really went hard and, and the community did. The community went hard. We went, we went, we went really hard. We could, Hey, this is bull. You need to answer this and put a lot of pressure on him to, to come up with the proof. He never had proof. He just kept going around and around and around and it threw him off. It threw him off his game. He ended up being his campaign and going completely off the rails. Uh, and he'd, he'd done such a job. There was so much evidence of him lying and, and not telling the truth, but yeah, he ended up lost, losing pretty handily. Thank God. And he should have won. Uh, but and now of course now she's being targeted right she's one of the she's one of the uh republicans targets because because he should have won right and uh but that's a perfect example of how we do it i think that's that is the answer right? almost the gold standard we bring the because this community for what it's worth and, and i was delighted to see that even people on the right joined us in that one ken i mean even 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 our brothers and sisters on the right said wait a minute this is this is bullshit you know there's just too much we, we all have to agree on again it's one of the things we have to do for this next phase of our country, right? We're going to have to find the things we fucking agree on, right? We agree. Most of us agree background checks are good. Most of us agree that lying about your military service is bad, right? And I think we can agree on that. If we can come together on those things, say, look, I don't care what his political spectrum is. I don't care where he stands on it. If this guy's lying about his combat service or lying about his actual service to for gain, then he should pay a price for it. And I'm thrilled that Jeremy Dusky did. It was great. I mean, it was great to see a guy flail around and, and he never had answers. Uh, it's anyway with Andrew Cloud, which you keep pressure on him. We have a proof. I mean, there, there's just so many nuances. The challenge with our community too is, I, like, I'll be honest with you, here's one that bogs me. And you may disagree with me, but I apologize. You know how people always go after Tom Cotton for saying he's a ranger? Okay. You know, talk, it's just like, I'm a ranger. I'm, I'm a ranger qualified. What did I do? I went to ranger school as an aviator. I admit there for a diver served a ranger unit. Fuck no. <laughs> I was an aviator, but I went to the damn school. I went to the school so much. I liked to stay for an extra phase because I, I washed out in Florida, <laughs> you know, and I recycled Florida, you know, but he, he's a ranger. Okay. I mean, it's just this, oh, well, he's ranger qualified. Well, this is the stuff that actually chases people out way, Ken. I think I think when we we all get so down in the weeds about these nuanced words, well, is your ranger, is your ranger qualified? Who fucking cares? Literally, the army itself says if you're if you get the tab, you're a ranger. That I think hurts us in the end. When you've got real people like Jared Majewski who have completely made up a story that is not factually based or is using it for serious gain. I'm not necessarily sure that Tom Cotton gained a Senate seat by saying he was a ranger. Versus only being ranger qualified. I I just don't think that grandma, <laughs> you know, grandma in, in Little Rock gave two shits about the difference in the word qualified versus not qualified uh, as a ranger. But we have people who are so blatantly using their military service to pad their resume and use it for for truly for gain. I think we have to come after him. But yeah, I, I get beat up every time because well, because I'm only ranger qualified, you know, and and I've I learned my lesson. My shit says ranger qualified on it, <laughs> you know, but. Uh, but the fact of the matter is only 3% of the entire United States Army ever goes to ranger school at all. So, you know, I'm not going to besmirch a guy who earned the tab. Got it. Well, I take it when it comes to someone like DeSantis, we have to be extra careful right. and extra vigilant because he's going to have a layer of defense around him that these clowns like Andrew Clyde do not, that the J.R. Majewskis yeah. do not. So we got to be buttoned up. I, I yeah. love, though, seeing his 
uh, it wasn't his DD-214. It was a fit rep that came out of a FOIA yep. request that showed his collateral duty as not the urinalysis coordinator, but the assistant, assistant. urinalysis mm-hmm. coordinator. This guy puts the lid on the jar. Let's use that, right? <laughs> he, was, he puts the labels on the jar, you know? I mean, it's just ridiculous. He's a lawyer. I mean, and what drives me crazy about his is when they try to show that he was some kind of badass with the with the Navy SEALs when he was the lawyer. Look, you and I know that the lawyer assigned the look, you're assigned to the Navy SEAL task force. You sat in a fucking fob. He never missed he never missed steak night. He never missed lobster night. He flip-flopped his ass to the gym every day and he sat in a, he sat in an air-conditioned trailer saying, Don't blow up that mosque. Go ahead and blow up that mosque, right? It was and they and they try to spend like you And you know, that's what we can do. Right. That, right. That that's as veterans, that's right. the story that we can help clarify. Like right. he was not kicking indoors. He was not risking no. his life. He's gonna tell you he was and right. he's lying. And the big red flag, you know, for me, the red flag I've always seen, my favorite red flag for any veteran who claims service, combat service, or some kind of heroic shit is where's the pictures? Because look, man, you and I both know. <laughs> Okay. Service members take a lot of fucking pictures. Everything, man. I did a story once. I wrote a, I wrote an article once talking about how basically military people are combat veterans are basically just heavily armed tourists, right? I mean, I do you know that you know that famous picture of the third ID guys taking the bridge in Baghdad. Uh, you know, or with, you know, they're undercover and they're getting ready to take the bridge. I guarantee you, one of those guys is like, "Yo, bro, let's take this bridge. Hold on, yo, I'm taking a bridge." <laughs> you know, because that's what we do, right? I mean, it's it's. Uh, I got so any any service member, any combat combat veteran. I'm doing the air quote combat veteran who says, "Oh yeah, there's no pictures of my service because it's super secret." That's fucking horseshit. I mean, come on. <laughs> there's always pictures. There's there's metric shit tons of pictures. You know, don't you remember all the day? Don't you remember the Navy SEALs doing? like you know tiktok dances back in the day i mean come on give me a break so that's your biggest fucking red flag when a guy can't and that's ron DeSantis. he's got one picture allegedly one picture of him allegedly downrange and he looks decidedly like he's not in actually a combat zone he's actually in a training game so that's a that's a red flag i'm sorry even it's a even it's a picture you flip-flopping to hell i got pictures of the thanksgiving ice carving at the damn embassy we all got pictures so when a combat veteran says i ain't got no pictures because i'm so super secret you know he's full of shit because we take pictures yeah. of everything yeah. <laughs> you know i bet ron DeSantis does have pictures he just doesn't want to see them we had doesn't uh, want to see him one that doesn't want to see him we we just had brett jones on the show uh great conversation oh, yeah, I saw that. openly gay navy seal really sticking it to Trump. And this guy left the teams and went CIA covert ops after that. And he's got pictures of that. Right. Look, there's nothing more secret than that. Right? <laughs> That's why it's this bullshit. I mean, come on, Ron. Where's the pictures? All right. The, pic- the pictures are of him flip-flopping right. the damn gym. It's him at the pool. It's it's him at the, you know, at the fucking steak night, taking the Senate pictures of the wife or the lobster. And and by the way, circling back, there's nothing wrong with that. That that's still honorable service. That we all did that. I, mean, I went one tour, I was getting shot at in my helicopter. Next tour, I was working on the embassy. I was working in the green zone, driving a fucking Bronco around. <laughs> you know, eating eating steak night. Actually, actually, when you lived in the green zone, you knew which one which people had the best steak night. You know, you know what I mean? It was the guy. That's it's fine. It's still honorable service, right? The point being, don't try to twist that to something it's not. Okay, you weren't a door kicker. You were. It, there's nothing wrong. And there's a distinctly thing on the right, right, Ken? I mean, it's like for some reason the right, you you have to be a door kicker. You're nobody. You know, it's like I'm sorry. I, when when only one percent of the of the American people serve in the military currently, 
when about 7% or less are actually veterans at this point, I don't give a fuck what you did when you were downrange. You were down there. Now, and I'm telling you, man, the night before I got to my last tour, I'm flying into Iraq. I get there. They put me in a, a hooch that first night, a temp hooch that first night. I get my third tour in Iraq, my fourth combat tour. I get there and it smells like shit. It turns out the trailer next to mine was a smoking hole because that day it got hit by a rocket from Sodder City. Okay. So I'm sorry. If you were downrange, there was no safe place. Any one of us could have gotten smoked any minute. I had a buddy get killed in the, we had a guy get killed in the damn stair stepper, for God's sake, at the Minsticky gym. A rocket came to the roof of the, of the gym. We had a guy get taken out over on the airport by, in a shower. You know, so if you're downrange, if you're in Iraq or Afghanistan, your life is in danger, period. Just going to the airport, right? So there's nothing ignoble about having served in, in something that wasn't a door kicker job. And so that's what I think makes me the craziest is like, look, you're a veteran. Great. Embrace it. Jeremy Juski. Great. You serve. You serve the honor. You, you So what? You loaded fucking planes and cutter. That's fine. You were you did more than what 98% of Americans, you actually stepped up and went, you know, it just makes me crazy when we take these and have to turn them into more. It, it, I think it's a psychological break. You know, it's, it's just something fucking wrong with people, I think. Well, I agree totally with that. It is a window into uh, a fragile right. person's insecurities. Right. And to have a front runner, or I mean, he's falling fast, but in the person of <laughs> Ron DeSantis, yeah. you know, a would-be front runner for the Republican nomination with that fragile of an ego, that should be- yeah. Oh, with the Top Gun uh, commercial, right. that, that fucking ridiculous commercial in the right. jet, which it may have been meant tongue in cheek. I don't know, because he just, he doesn't seem like a funny fucking guy. And Jared Rajewski, what got Jared Rajewski in trouble was, remember his first ad was him kicking down a door and taking his giant fat ass and running through the building in, in the smoke-filled room with a with an M4. It's like, dude, you loaded airplanes in gutter, okay? <laughs> you know, it's just, it, these guys have to, you know, build themselves into something that works. I flew helicopters. Was I kicking the doors? No, hell no. I was I was flying to get good food, <laughs> you know, but, but I did it and uh, lost some weight, you know, but it's just, it is what it is. It's just... Uh, yeah, it's that fragile ego, but that's when you get in trouble. It's claiming to be more than you were, taking what was it was perfectly honorable service and trying to make it more than it was is distinctly. I mean, you have to admit there's that misogyny streak of it. There's that that toxic, that toxic toxic masculinity streak that runs through a lot of these people because you know they they got to prove they're more masculine and more manly than everybody else. It's like I don't know. I I know women that could kick my ass, and I have no problem admitting that. That toxic masculinity streak is really on a tear in the Republican Party today. I'm thinking about Josh Hawley's book that's coming out. I mean, nobody should be lecturing anybody on masculinity, right? But this idea has really taken hold of the Republican Party that manliness is a certain thing. Right. You know what? Dan Barkoff, we both know who I add on, he put it best. He he characterized the the Republican view of manliness as wanting people to be afraid of you, and that is exactly the opposite of what a of, of what a confident person seeks. Right, right, right. My my dad was a Marine World War II. Okay, that's pretty fucking manly. <laughs> you know, you know, and he was he was soft as they come. You know, he, he had a good laugh. He, he had a soft body. Bought, he bought my mom's shoes. You know, I was like, <laughs> you know, she loved shoes. So he had, yeah, I should want shoes. I'll buy her shoes. Like, you know, he just he, quite confident in his manhood. And and I assure you that as a Marine War II, no one should ever question his masculinity in any way. And and, and somewhere along the line, that intimidation factor. And Dan, God, he's fucking brilliant. I love talking. We actually just talked today. 
And and that's why I loved working with Dan during the campaign. Is he's, he's a brilliant man. He's a Navy SEAL who went on to medical school. And, and and that's the thing. You can you can be all those things. And how we define our masculinity and how we define you know these these roles is unique. And it has taken a weird choice. I hear in Missouri. Uh, I think I posted my newsletter yesterday. You know, we've got this. We've got these this weird toxic. You know that that front seat truck bearded bro thing going on like all of our state delegates on the republican side are all growing out these beards and carrying guns and and and, and it's funny there's one i love to drive me ben baker he's a state delegate here in, in missouri and this fucking guy ran with like mr middle school dad with no beard and you know the button-up shirt and you know his kid pictures and then as soon as he gets an office there's this fucking weird makeover with this giant beard he's packing guns and you know it's like and i always like to drag him on twitter every time you post a picture like isn't this you right here this like you know mr middle you know it's just this weird toxic posting memes to drag their constituents it's like where did you get so lost you think the service to your country means intimidating people or telling, you know, it's just, it's a weird, weird thing. And it's always funny. I, my favorite of all these stories is Charlotte Clymer, if you know Charlotte, right? So Charlotte, of course, transgender, <laughs> served in the military as a dude, <laughs> you know, uh, in, the, in the old guard and the infantry. She was an infantry leader. And uh, one of my favorite Twitter gotchas is when some guy goes, oh, yeah, he probably knows more about shooting a machine gun than you ever have. It. And she just loves to go on there and list all of her, her different qualifications, <laughs> uh, machine guns. And again, it's this, it's this you know, and I assure you, Charlotte is, is, is every bit the soldier. Probably, honestly, she saw more combat than I did as, a, as an infantryman, probably. And, um, and, and I just laugh because the, this, this conceit that you need to be a bearded bro to be a manly man and, and, and to be a proper veteran, you know, I, I get it all the time. It's it just cracks me up. We're laughing about it, but I'm getting more and more afraid about the violent rhetoric coming from the top of the Republican yes. Party from and being echoed all the way to the bottom. Yeah. And, and let me be clear. I, I don't sugarcoat this. You and I at a time in our lives were men of violence. Yes. We joined willingly the most efficient fighting machine in the history of the yes. world, but that violent tendency was constrained by our oaths, by our commanders, by the law itself. Yep. And the difference between that and today is it is completely unconstrained. It's not just unconstrained, it's fantasized about, it's yes. celebrated. There's this idea about violence as a solution that is totally unrooted in reality, and it's being promoted by people who I don't think have ever seen the aftermath of an engagement. No. And, and I say that a lot too, is like, if you actually, here's the thing, I don't know about you, but amongst my peer group, what I have found is the most difficult people, the people doing the worst PTSD I've met are not generally people who killed someone or excuse me, had someone killed or were, had violence struck against them. Typically the people I know with PTSD the most are ones who killed or were forced with a choice to possibly kill or the ethical dilemma we run into as many of us raised in the Judeo-Christian values of which, whatever you want to call them, the values of our community, um, that all life is precious. The people I know with the worst kind of PTSD are those who were forced to kill someone or someone they commanded, like my situation, I, I admit freely is a survivor's guilt situation where two of my soldiers flew a mission where we argued over who would fly it. They, they flew the mission, they died. Um, the people I know, those, and, and and just think about that for a second. It's our nature as humans to think life is precious. And those of us who have had to make that choice of killing 
and I made that choice. People people like to drag me as a little softy pilot. Well, as a scout pilot for Apaches in Desert Storm, I assure you, <laughs> we made the choice to end people's lives many times. And literally a choice of, this is the vehicle, it's got four guys in it, take it out. And it leaves you. Decent humans, real humans with a moral and ethical a framework they were built upon, carry the burden of taking another's life or a life being taken from them, from orders they gave very seriously. It's why I always say that Kyle Rittenhouse is so deeply broken. You know, a normal human would feel some remorse and guilt for having killed two other human beings. Uh, the fact that he celebrates it and allows it to be celebrated tells me very much about his psyche. And so those, like you said, circling back to the point you made, is these guys who fantasize about killing somebody, these guys who have this weird, perverse desire to use violence, to carry guns, call themselves sheepdogs, which is the most fucked up analogy you could possibly come up with, have never been in the situation, I believe, where they had to actually act on that and, and make the choice that a human who's lived a long life will have it ended at your hands, leaving a mother, a father, a daughter, wife, family, uh, because the choice we made to end that life. So yeah, I have great disrespect for those who fantasize about it or celebrate those who murder. I think it's one of the things I hate so much about the Rittenhouse situation where he's celebrated for having murdered people. So yeah, I think you're right. I think these people who live these fantasies, it's very dangerous by the way, because they are walking around. Now, like we just, back to what we talked about earlier, circling back this concealed carry law in Florida. Now we got more people fantasizing being, they all fantasize being the guy who's there that day at 7-Eleven when that kid comes in to rob the place, he takes out the bad guy. You know, it shouldn't be a human fantasy. Murder should not be a human fantasy. And our society is in danger when so many amongst us have a desire to kill and the tools are readily available. What is so glaringly absent from that sheepdog analogy, the, the sheepdog protects the sheep yeah. against the wolves. You've got those three pieces of it is the absence of the shepherd, right. the person <laughs> who is wise enough to know when to employ violence versus going straight to the trigger. Right. And I think there's an entire population of people who think that violence is is the first resort and you see it coming straight out of the mouths of, of people like like Donald Trump. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to get, if it hasn't already, it's going to get someone killed. I don't know if you saw, but the the founder of the Tennessee Holler, who's done amazing work documenting corruption in, in Nashville, he's following these kids' protests yep. in the state capitol. His house uh -huh. just today was shot up. up. They don't know who did it, but, you know, bullets are flying yep. because of this fantasization of violence. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is dangerous. And look, you study a little bit of history. I used to have a thing called the Beer Hall Project. I guess definitely I still do. And the Beer Hall Project, well, our focus of the Beer Hall Project when we had it was the the historic analogy of what happened with the Beer Hall Pooch in Germany in 1923, and then the following. And the key that people, a lot, yeah, a lot of people will talk about the Beer Hall Push as a failure in many ways, but it wasn't. It's what propelled Hitler to power all these years. How did it do it? Well, first of all, he was barely punished for it. Uh, his movement continued. But what if, you, if you follow the Nazi history from there, they used violence, uh, uh, creating violence in the streets was part of their plan. And they did the same thing in Italy with the fascists, with Mussolini, which is, oh, we're going to fight the Bolsheviks and we're going to fight the communists. And they would have street fights. And then they present themselves as the people who can stop the violence. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so violence is 
inherent in authoritarian power grabs. I know, I think you've had, you had Ruth Ben Guillet on. I know that. I had Ruth on my show and I've, I've gotten to know her a couple of times. I had her on another uh, activity I did once and and she lays it all out for you that this is the this is the system. They these leaders encourage violence, and and the violence they will go. The the violence will occur. Do you see where a Nazi, an actual Nazi, uh, tried to firebomb a church that was having a drag show in Ohio? You know, in Ohio. Yep, you know. So yeah. the violence is occurring, whether or not we want to admit it and and see it. But this is what they want. They want these soft minded people to enact their dreams of violence, and then they could say, oh. See the violence. This this is the system. See, we're we can protect you from that. We're going to save you from that. It's happened before. It can happen here. And I would argue, as you said, it is happening here. And now we've got a nation awash in AR-15s, just dying to shoot something. You know, it's it's this very dangerous time. It, it, it was funny to me is, you know, looking back now two years, how many people thought when Trump lost that all this would just go away, and, and I think even people in power today whom I respect, sort of had this belief that. Yeah, things will just go back to normal at some point. And uh, I, I'm scared that there's people in power right now who, st who still think maybe normal might come back on its own. And um, yeah. it won't. And well, we got to fight for it. Um, thank you so much for being in the trenches with us, yeah. Fred. Uh, we got to be vigilant. Yeah, man. It's a pleasure. I'm proud of the work you do. I'm glad you're doing well. It's exciting to see your success. And uh, if I can ever help anyway, I'm always happy to help. People can find me online anytime. I'm still, I'm still on Twitter at FP Wellman. So, <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are. And definitely worth the Yes, I am. Thanks so much for joining us, Fred. Thanks, brothers. Good seeing you again. You too. Thanks again to Fred for joining me. You can find him on Twitter at, at FP Wellman. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Ruloffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.